Hey everybody, this is Rafe Telsch and this is episode 64 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everyone is having a great week out there. I am so excited about this week's episode. I, I This one is a great movie, great conversation, but it's, it's, it's one of my favorite movies, and it's one that I have had an emotional connection with for a very long time, and that's something that comes across in our conversation. Um, this is the fourth cast member of the Lucky Die podcast joining me this week. Uh, his name is Arch, and... You know, if you've listened to any of our other Lucky Die cast member episodes, you know that they have quite the affinity for film. They have quite the affinity for Disney-type movies. Um, And it's been phenomenal talking with all these guys. As I said in my intro the last time we had one of those, I've gotten back into gaming and Dungeons & Dragons in the last year. And um, listening to podcasts like theirs has really kind of, I think, helped feed that beast when I'm not able to play. So getting to chat film with with them uh, has just been a continuous pleasure, and I'm so glad to have gotten the fourth member on the show. Uh, if, if you listen to the episode, you'll hear it's probably unlikely that I'm going to get the fifth member of their group, but uh, I'll take the four that I have, and I hope that they will come back on and talk more movies with me. Um, Arch picked Finding Nemo from 2003, uh, which is a pretty popular movie, and yet, as I've made the case before, even the most popular movies, there are people out there who have not seen and. You know, there are people who just immediately have a tendency to avoid animated films, especially Disney and Pixar type movies, because they think they're for kids. But this one is not. I mean, it is for kids, but it has so much that speaks to us as adults as well, uh, which is a topic that Arch and I get into. And I, I will say this, it's not evident necessarily in the recording, but I feel like um, there, there's a, a emotional depth to our conversation this time that hasn't really come up a lot of the times that, that I've talked movies with other people. Um, and I think that happens a lot when we get into films that discuss that parent, especially father-son relationship, with which both Arch and I have experience with as, you know, males. Um, and I have the additional experience of, of having that with my own son, which we do talk about in the episode. So I hope you like the movie. Uh, I hope you love our conversation about it. Here we go with 2003's Finding Nemo. Now, I find it hilarious that we're recording uh, this before the third recording of your your group uh, hits the air yet. So you haven't heard what the the third member of your party has had to say yet. (laughs) I haven't. Literally, all it was is they, I think it was V and Athor both were like, hey, you should go do this thing. And then Casey was like, yeah, do the thing. And I was like, okay, what do I do? And they're like, pick a movie and then talk about it. I was like, oh shit, all right, well, I can do it. Is it okay for me to curse? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, wait. <laughs> Not everybody yeah. likes that. Yeah, no, I my my one of my first questions to Athor was um, how many more of you there were and when could I expect to hear from you? Because every member has contacted me individually uh, it pro- we probably could have expedited the process by just doing this as, you know, all right, for everybody in the group, what do you want to sign up for? That kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah. I think at this point, the only one you're missing is Neil. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I haven't heard from him, but I figure as soon as we're done recording, you'll put the pressure on him or something. Or he'll just be the uh, the elusive guest. <laughs> he might be the elusive one. He's kind of our like big editor and musical composer, so his schedule is chaos. Gotcha. And I also found it really interesting that you picked a Disney or a Pixar movie, but released by Disney, because, you know, you're not the first one of your crew to to do that either, since we originally talked about uh, Beauty and the Beast. I kind of just have an infatuation with Finding Nemo. (laughs) There's a story behind it. There's a reason. Well, good. Well, we'll get into that in a minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, So before we get into the movie, I just kind of like to get some some general information about the guest just to kind of give the listeners context, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, Are you a Disney fan? I am absolutely a Disney fan, except for the um, ancient old school uh, racism that's inherently there, but. Well, yeah, I I mean, I'm a huge Disney fan, but I'm certainly not promoting that. (laughs) I'm a fan of Disney entertainment. I am not a fan of Walt Disney himself. Interesting. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I haven't heard it put that way before. That's the best way I can explain it. See, I I, I mean, I, I, I can understand that. I, I totally can. I am a fan of Disney himself in some of the things he accomplished. Um, that's not to say that I believe in everything, you know, that, that he certainly promoted or believed or that kind of thing. I mean, he, again, he was a, the, the time periods were so different that it's kind of hard to pass judgment completely on someone you know, for having more racist ideals in a time where that was the norm. That is true. <laughs> so what are some of your favorite movies? Like, what what kind of movies do you usually go for if it's not Disney? If it's not Disney, um, I'm going to be completely honest. I am a huge Tolkien nerd. Oh, awesome. I'm I'm the, the, the whole fantasy, dragons, magic, elves, that whole spiel that that is everything me. Cool. Okay. That's fantastic. Albeit more so books than movies, because let's be honest, most of the time they turn the book into the movie and we know how that usually pans out. But Not very well, yeah. I think the, the Lord of the Rings continues to be the exception to that rule rather than the norm. I mean, we did an episode on the Warcraft movie, and as Fuck, good as it... That. <laughs> well, we already did that movie, so... That's fair. But it's, it's not a terrible movie, but when you relate it to all the lore and everything that comes from the video game, it doesn't quite stand up. And that's kind of the true of most fantasy adaptations. The the books just far surpass the movies, and I, I don't know why they can't capture the magic as well. I think it's because of an issue that most of the time they don't have the writer as like involved as they should be. Or if they do, the, the producer, the director, whoever it is. Uh, has to stick their nose where it doesn't belong in it, and it just ruins everything. That's like Ar- a, Aragon, yeah. perfect example. I have not seen the movie, and actually, I, now that I think about it, I've not read the book either. Read the book first, I promise <laughs> you. Read the book first, and then watch the movie, and you will understand where I'm coming from. Gotcha. I think the reason I didn't pursue the book, because I remember when it was big, um, but I remember when the second one came out and a lot of people were saying, well, that was lightning that struck one time and, and it's not going to strike again. And like he, his follow up books didn't go over as well. I would disagree as someone that read all of them, but I guess that's just some people prefer different. Well, I guess, so the thing is with the Aragon books, uh, the second book kind of did this thing where every few chapters would swap between uh, Aragon and his cousin. Mm-hmm. 
And I think a lot of people just were not a big fan of that flopping back and forth, because to be honest, from someone that read the book several times, the the cousin side of things really was pretty boring compared to the main character stuff that was going on. But like, I understand why it was there. It was needed for world building and character development. But eh. I thought the third <laughs> and fourth books were amazing, though. See, and by the time there were more books, it just was completely off my radar. Like, I knew about the first book, and I knew about people not really embracing the second book as much. Um, I don't know if the movie didn't do well, and that's why we didn't get any further movies, or the second book wasn't as popular, and that's why we didn't get any more movies. But I can tell I, you it was the movie that did it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> was it as bad as the uh, uh, Jeremy Irons Dungeons & Dragons movie? I would dare to say it was about on par. Okay, that's pretty bad. <laughs> the thing is, if I recall correctly, Jeremy Irons is in the Aragon movie. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I'm, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, hold on, I'm going. <laughs> Jeremy Irons was in the Aragon movie. Oh my goodness, that man just cannot do fantasy. I mean, it's not his fault that the Dungeons and Dragons movie was not good. Let's not let's be honest. There, it's not his fault. It was just not a good movie, and he happened to be in it. He's a good actor. Like, yeah, oh, he's a brilliant actor. Just he has a bad streak of saying yes to the wrong project. <laughs> he certainly did go through one of those. Oh. So, if you had your druthers, what what fantasy um, Tolkien esque project would you see undertaken with? the writers on board. Hmm. I feel like going back to talking about the Warcraft movie. So I'm a huge world of Warcraft nerd. And there was the one book, Arthas. Yes. That was written by uh, Christy Golden. That book, if that was turned into a movie properly with Christy Golden guiding it along the way, I honestly think that could have been the perfect Warcraft movie. Well, there is speculation. There's been hints that they may be doing another Warcraft movie. And of course, fan speculation is always on that Arthas story. Like, that's what fans want to see brought to the big screen. Because it's so iconic. Yeah, we're, exactly. I mean, not that the not that what they captured in the first movie isn't iconic as far as the history of Warcraft goes, but yeah, no, I I totally agree. I could I could get on board with that, especially if Golden was in, involved. I've always wanted to see the Dragonlance world brought to life on the big screen. Mm. If uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman were involved, I know they did a direct to DVD or direct to VHS uh, animated movie with Kiefer Sutherland voicing Raislin. And it was not good. (laughs) I can only imagine. I I read the Dragonlance books ages ago. Yeah. On the subject now of D&D stuff. Oh, God. (laughs) It's, yeah, that there's, God, they, they, D&D has not had much success breaking into other media. Yeah, and I I mean, shoot, I mean, I've always thought of D&D as being this big success, but then the fact that, you know, TSR ended up having to sell out or being bought out, you know, by another company, by Wizards of the Coast, you know, that right there kind of was a testament to D&D was never the financial success that I thought it was. And now look at it. They're not in the position of like... Well, I, I guess like Blizzard using our point of comparison, you know, where they can or or I, I was going to go with like Marvel where they can kind of bankroll their own project. Right. So, 
All right, one more question before we move back to things. Actually, a couple more questions before we move back to things. First of all, the podcast is called Have Not Seen This. We talk about movies that we're surprised other people have not seen. What are your have not seen this movies? What are movies that people are surprised when they find out you have not seen? Um, That depends who you ask. So as a good example, <laughs> you had Casey on here. Uh-huh. Casey watches all of the super obscure shit. Right. And then makes references to them constantly when we're recording on TLD. And then... I'm just going, yep, that's a reference I don't get because I never watched that movie. <laughs> now, did she make you watch The Wraith? Um, no. <laughs> I refuse. Uh, it's not bad. It was, it was fun, I got to admit. <laughs> okay, so before we get into Finding Nemo, this is a, very much a movie with a strong father-son dynamic. You do not sound particularly old to me. Um, so I'm going to ask what, what decade are you in as far as age goes? You don't have to narrow it down any further than that. And do you have kids? Oh, I'll, t- I'll just tell you straight up that I'm 28 and God, no, I do not have kids. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so on that note, this week we are talking about Finding Nemo, a movie about a father-son dynamic. This will be a really interesting conversation. Uh, Finding Nemo from 2003, written by Andrew Stanton, Bob Peterson, and David Reynolds, directed by Andrew Stanton and Lee Unkirk, starring the voices of Albert Brooks, Ellen DeGeneres, Alexander Gould, and Willem Dafoe. All right, Dory. Let's go over this one more time. We know your memory's not the best. Yep, can't remember diddly. Yeah, I know. Can't remember squat. That's right. Diddly squat. Diddly squat. Now, up, oh, Dory, over here. Now listen to me. We need to ask for directions. Uh-huh. Directions. You gotta be low key. Low key. Because fish in this part of the reef, very skittish. Skittish. All right. You got that? Uh huh. You're sure? Yeah. You don't remember a word, do you? Nope. Nothing in monogam. So my. Staple first question is, how do you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it? How do you sell them on seeing it, especially given how pervasive it is in our culture? I kind of feel like if a person hasn't seen this movie at this point, they're making a conscious choice not to do so. Probably. I usually would explain it as it's a kid movie with enough adult influence behind it that like, no matter what age you are, you can get something from it. And it's just one of those movies that really makes you feel feelings in a time when it's very hard to feel anything other than depression. (laughs) I'm not sure that this movie doesn't make me feel some depression, too, but that's some of my own personal baggage that I bring to it. No, that's fair. (laughs) So uh, this was the first you, you said, you know, you kind of have an obsession with this movie. What's behind that? So my mom, uh, for a long time when me and my sister were we youngins, uh, my mom had gotten one of those, like the Ford Explorers that had the built-in DVD player a long mm-hmm. while back. And we didn't really have like DVDs is the thing. Like we had the DVD player, but my family wasn't the type to really buy DVDs all that much. Gotcha. Um, one of the few that we had was Finding Nemo. Now, the thing is, is in that car, it would either play through the car speakers or we had to wear headphones. Uh, this was the one exception of a movie that my mom was okay with us playing it through the speakers because Mm -hmm. she enjoyed the movie as much as we did. Mm -hmm. So anytime we went driving anywhere, anytime there was a road trip, whatever we were doing, this movie was on. Gotcha. So I watched this movie through and through a lot. I think that's a testament to what you said about it, though, as far as like having 
content that adults can relate to as far as as well as content that kids want because it certainly is that kind of a movie and it sounds like that's almost part of your experience as as a kid you appreciated it but your mom didn't mind it either because it has those more adult concepts to it as well and i think she just liked hearing ellen degeneres <laughs> are are you prepared for later in the show when i ask you to do your best whale impression <laughs> that depends are you prepared to hear me doing the whale impression <laughs> So, so my history with this movie is, I mean, it's, it came out in 2003. Uh, I do have a son. Uh, he was born in 2009. Uh, okay. So I was well acquainted with this movie long before he came into my picture. So this is one of those movies that's changed over time for me because I just really enjoyed the story. But as I became a father and as I've gotten older as a father, um, there are definitely elements of the movie that that speak to that part of me. But my son loved this movie as a little kid. Like when he was two or three, this was one of those movies that was on repeat. And oh. like when we would go on road trips and we had a DVD player in the car, this is one of the movies that would go with us. And I, I still will never forget that I made the cardinal sin, uh, and it was my fault, not my my ex-wife's, my fault of one day he wanted to put the movie on and I was distracted and I, I didn't think anything of it. And I put the movie in and suddenly I had this two-year-old, three-year-old coming up to me going, daddy, what happened to Coral? Because we always skipped past the first chapter. So to him, the movie always opened with Nemo and Marlin waking up and time to take Nemo to school. He had never oh. seen that part before. And I'm the dumbass who forgot to jump over it and I had to explain to him that that was a part of the movie he hadn't seen before. Huh. <laughs> I hadn't even considered that. Yeah. It was it was a little traumatic for him because he's he's he reached an age uh, pretty early on where he became very sensitive to those Bambi moments. I mean, this has that Bambi moment in it mm -hmm. where the parent dies. And a lot of Disney fare, the parent is dead before the story, but every once in a while you get one of those Bambi moments where the parent is not dead, and by before act one is done, the parent is gone. And he's always been very sensitive to that. <laughs> but, and then I'll stop hogging the spotlight here, the, the other thing, I talked about this movie on, a, um, on another podcast where... Um, I appeared after Onward was on. We did a review of Onward, but then we did an episode where we ranked our top five Pixar movies. And this one is in my top five Pixar movies. And, and I kind of explained on that podcast, one of the reasons that isn't even the movie itself, but that's when my son was three, we took him to Disney World. <gasps> and the Living Seas at Epcot is, has been changed to be Nemo-themed. Oh, that's uh, so, so cool. Yeah. it's Oh, they have like animatronic... Um, seagulls outside that chirp, mine, 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 mine. <laughs> and and when you go in, um, as you're going through the queue rooms, you're descending below the sea. So each room is um, done up as if you're like, you know, on the shore. And then the next room, you're kind of a little closer to under the water. And then the next room, you're under the water. And I just remember when we went there, my, you know, three-year-old son being just exhausted. And so I was carrying him through this queue and we got to the room where you were underwater and it's dimly lit and it's just, it's gorgeous. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. And the music from this movie is playing. And I remember walking through and stopping just to kind of look at how beautiful the room was done up. 
and hearing the music from this movie and feeling him kind of snuggle closer to me as I was carrying him. And it's just this moment that is burned in my memory forever. Oh, I'm jealous. That actually does sound really nice. So, suck it. Don't want kids. <laughs> no, no. Still don't want kids. As someone that's worked retail far too long, still don't want kids. Oh, I, I did retail. Um, I did retail through most of my 20s, and a lot of that was Toys R Us. Rest in peace. I was at GameStop for four years. I know the pain. <laughs> so, ma'am, yeah, I can I, I can understand how that would lead to you not wanting kids. <laughs> ma'am, I don't know how many different ways I can tell you that Grand Theft Auto V is not suitable for your four-year-old, but, it's like, yeah. Oh, my God. I don't. And, and again, I mean, my son's 11 now. He was born in 2009. And the number of times he asks me about video games now where I look at it and I'm like, no. There's no way. But so-and-so plays it, and he says it's fine for me. Like, no, he's not your parent. Exactly. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I mean, granted, I also was playing Mortal Kombat with my dad when I was, like, four years old, but eh. He freaked out at Mortal Kombat when he was, like, four years old. Like, I had it for the Xbox 360, and the blood and stuff just put him off. He would laugh. He, he laughed when he was too young, and I had Lord of the Rings on, and that, that scene in Fellowship where the Uruk-hai turns to the camera and roars. He oh. thought that was the funniest thing ever, but the <laughs> computer-generated blood in Mortal Kombat was too much for him. <laughs> oh, this is going a, ways, a long ways back. This is PlayStation 1 we're talking about. <laughs> the graphics were a little different. <laughs> there was still blood. <laughs> there was. Although, if I remember correctly, there was a cheat code you could do that turned it green. Um, I think so. I was about to ask if you could turn it off on that, because I know like the Super Nintendo version of it, you could turn it off. I, I think so, yeah. Yeah. All right, hey, let's talk about Finding Nemo a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Keep getting off track. It's all that's what this show is. It's all good. So th this has a couple of really notable things as far as Pixar goes because this is before Pixar's deal with Disney. Before P Pixar got absorbed with Disney, this was still part of their original like five picture deal mm -hmm. with Disney. So it is not technically a Disney film. It is a Pixar film that was distributed by Disney. It is the first Pixar film. Uh, that had Thomas Newman do the score instead of his, are they brothers or cousins? Beats me. Anyway, th this is also the first animated film that doesn't have a, or not animated film, first Pixar film that doesn't have a song that really goes along with the movie. In all of the other Pixar movies prior to this, there were songs either interspersed in the film, not that it was a musical, but they were there, or played over the end credits. And this one doesn't have that. Yeah. They, they, oh. Yeah. I mean, Randy Newman wrote like three songs for Toy Story and then Monsters, Inc. and Bugs Life have songs that play during the end credits. Uh, but he, th this one wasn't done by Randy Newman and was uh, uh, doesn't have a song to it. But I love... Thomas Newman's score for this movie. As I said, I mean, I just have that moment from Disney World, but I, the score itself is just as beautiful as the visuals are in this film. It kind of was more of like an ambience to it. It wasn't really like music music. It just kind of was there. Yeah. Except for the, uh, what's it? Um, The Somewhere Beyond, uh, Beyond the Sea thing at the end. That was the only like outside song that played really. Right, but that's not an original creation for the for the movie. That's you know that's an existing song that that works really well in the end credits. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So taking a look critically at the movie, uh, it sits at ninety nine percent at Rotten Tomatoes, as it should. It it's just 
heralded film. It sits at 90% at Metacritic, which is a little more recent. There is only one negative review on Rotten Tomatoes. I always try to pull in a positive and a negative review. There is only one negative review, and that comes from Stephanie Zakarik from Salon.com. And she writes, after years of cultivating the eyes of a grown-up, I like to think there's something to be said for using them. Finding Nemo is lovely to look at, and time and again, I found myself asking, who cares? It's possible that Finding Nemo and most computer animation in general, including other Pixar micro-masterpieces like A Bug's Life and Monsters, Inc., offer too much of a good thing. It's all beautiful, all right, but before long, I began to feel beaten against the rocks of that beauty. Finding Nemo smacks of looky what I can do virtuosity, and after the first 10 minutes or so, it's exhausting. What? (laughs) Stephanie, do you not like nice things? (laughs) Is that your, like, I'm I'm sorry, who hurt you as a child? (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, this movie is visually stunning, and I can't even imagine having that reaction to it. Oh, great. Another visually beautiful movie. Guy. <laughs> what are they going to do next? Have a great story? Ugh. Well, and that's just it. Is It's, I mean, Pixar, up until a point, and I think Pixar has had a couple of duds, so you, you can't say every time now, but most of the time, Pixar is just analogous with mixing a beautiful story with beautiful visuals. Yeah, it's, that's kind of their, their thing. Yeah. And I think this is definitely a masterpiece for them. As I said, I mean, it made it into my top five Pixar movies when I had to do a ranking of them. They make so. it onto my top movies in general just twice. Actually, oh, no. Yeah. Did they make Moana? Uh, no, Moana was Disney. Okay. So not that. Toy Story. Toy Story is in my top five favorite movies. Gotcha. Alongside Finding Nemo. So they've made it twice on my list. Yeah. Yeah, I don't understand her... Um, and, and as I said, it's the only negative review among the top critics on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, on the positive side, as usual, I try to bring in Roger Ebert when I can. Uh, he says, when I review a movie like Finding Nemo, I am aware that most members of its primary audience do not read reviews. Their parents do. And to them and adults who do not have children as an excuse, I can say that Finding Nemo is a pleasure for grownups. There are jokes we get that kids don't, and the complexity of Albert Brooks's neuroses, and that enormous canvas filled with creatures that have some of the same hypnotic beauty as, well, fish in an aquarium. They may appreciate another novelty. This time, the dad is the hero of the story, although in most animation, it is almost always the mother. When I first read that, I was like, really? But he's kind of right? A lot of the time, it's the dad that's gone. Yeah, I guess so. Well, actually, no, hold on. Thinking about it, so like, oh, man. (laughs) In the theme of Disney movies, so off the top of my head... Little Mermaid, there's no mom, just the dad, but the dad's an idiot. Well, the dad's practically an antagonist, yeah. Mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast, dad's, again, just kind of a bumbling idiot. <laughs> oh, he's sweet. He <laughs> is, but still bumbling idiot. <laughs> You're going to pay for that when you realize that. That's <laughs> ah, fine. Listen, he's the lovable idiot. Yeah, but that's but the dad's not the hero. I mean, you're kind of uh, illustrating the point is that the dad is not the hero in those films. Yeah. He, he may be present, but he's not a heroic figure. Hmm. And I hadn't thought about that till Ebert pointed it out. I don't think it's true all of the time, but it is true a lot of the time. I mean, most of the Disney animated classics or, or I mean, just animated classics in general that we go to, the parents are... S- most of the time they're they're secondary characters or they're absent altogether. 
But when the parents are there, a lot of the time it is the mother rather than the father. Now I'm struggling to even just think of any like points of reference on that. <laughs> well, like Brave comes to mind, although that came after this. One of the, I think, underappreciated Pixar films. And it's the mother. That's like the first one that comes to mind for me. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't as taken with Brave, so I didn't watch it more than just the one time. I think I've only seen it twice, which is sad because I even owned it on DVD before Disney Plus came along. I really need to revisit it. As I said, I think it's an underappreciated Pixar film, but I think it's also underappreciated by me. <laughs> All right, so those are the critical side. For you, what what is the draw of this film? What is the main thing that speaks to you? Because obviously you're not going to connect with that same father-son dynamic. Not in the same way. So back then I connected with the movie just as it was a very, like, I don't know, there's something cutesy and wholesome about it for me as a young young lad. Uh, watching the movie, and I, I like that sense of adventure that it gave. Um, as an adult, I actually was just watching the movie with my girlfriend before we did this call, uh, just so I had it fresh in my brain. Right. And I actually got kind of emotional at it, um, just because of the fact that I unfortunately lost my father when I was just turning 18, uh, so about 10 years ago. Gotcha. Uh so it kind of hit me on a different point for then because it's like I didn't have the same kind of relationship with my dad due to a lot of issues on his end that I resented him for. Gotcha. So it kind of hit me in a different way. What part made you, because you said you had an emotional reaction, where did that come, just out of curiosity? I think most of it was just the points where you could really feel the emotion from Marlon actually like getting upset, feeling like he's not going to be able to save Nemo. Gotcha. Okay. And I think it's just because I wish that I still had my dad around and that he actually gave me that feeling like right. he gave a shit, but yeah, for me, I think this is the first time I've really sat down because again, it was on constant rotation when my when my son was two or three, and it's one of those that when your kid watches something to that level, you tend not to revisit it, even if it's one of your favorite movies for a while. You need you need a break from it. So mm -hmm. I think this is the first time I sat down and watched it since then. Um, and for me, it was when they were in the mouth of the whale, Marlin. Um, breaking down because he, and it's exactly what you said, the idea of, of not being able to save him, you know, that he's, he's bumping up against the, the teeth or the, 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 the whatever things, you want. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And saying, you know, I have to tell him how old sea turtles are like, that's, that was important to him. He has to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And I, and I promised him that nothing would ever happen. And when and Dory's response to that of, you know, that's that's kind of a silly thing to promise someone. Stuff's always going to happen. And for me, this time, that was kind of where I reached my breaking point with the story of, wow, I know that feeling. You know, how many times uh, because I mean, in the, in the since my son was born, you know, his his mother and I have divorced and, you know, I still see him regularly. But on the times that I don't have him, how often something pops up and it's like, oh, I have to show him this trailer or, oh, I have to tell him this news about Fortnite or Marvel movies or something like that. <laughs> and it's like and that becomes important to me 
because I want to share it with him. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how often it is because I want to share it with him versus how much of it is I want to know that I'm going to see him again to be able to share that news with him. There's always uh, something with father-son connections that just, it hits different. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that you didn't have that connection with your dad. I mean, that certainly is, um, I, I, I can understand seeing something like this and feeling the absence of that rather than feeling the, the strength of that, if that makes any sense. It, it, viewing it as a in a different light yeah yeah it was it's one of those things just you see something and where most people would translate it one way you kind of take it in a different well yeah well and that's i mean that's art that, that again i've said it numerous times on this show and 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 elsewhere that that's film is art and that certainly is part of it is how we respond to it it may not always be what the director or writer intended because we bring our own baggage along with it Mm-hmm. And it and it sounds to some degree like, you know, and not not saying it's baggage uh, in a negative way, but that's your life experience. And so that's how you're going to respond to it. Yeah. And I, I think the emotion that Albert Brooks brings to this role is also a big part of that just for anybody, because he is so perfectly cast in this role that he gets to be the neurotic person that people know him to be from his other roles. But he also gets to be really funny. And he also gets to be really serious, and he he does it all with such power and dedication that it it's one of my favorite Disney voice performances. He he made the character who who he was. Yeah, he gave it that personality and that voice that it needed in order to really be be a distinct character in a world where animation is very what's the word vanilla? I guess would be the best term I could think of. <laughs> Well, and I think he's countered brilliantly by Ellen DeGeneres. You know, I mean, she is, I know the role of Dory was written specifically for her. And I really, when I, if you just read on paper, the concept of Dory, that she's this scattered brain fish with no short-term memory, and she's kind of a nuisance. Um, she sounds like she'd be the world's most irritating character. And that was my biggest fear when they announced a sequel that centered around her. It was like, no, that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. But, but, and, and I'll ask you about Dory later, but as a character, she's the perfect balance to, to Marlon because he's neurotic and nervous and worried and, and passionate about trying to find his son. And she is the opposite end of the spectrum. She's carefree and um, flitty. And, and I, I just, I think they did a brilliant job balancing those two characters. She also was the one that progressed most of the story. Yeah. Like she was the one that pushed Marlon along and actually got him where he needed to be instead of him giving up at every single difficult turn. I don't know that he really gave up at every single turn, but he certainly lets circumstances beat him down. But like, I mean, you look at the beginning of the movie when he and Coral are first enjoying their home and that Barracuda shows up. And that's obviously that's going to become what happens to Coral and f- almost 400 fish eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, And he tells Coral, you know, come inside. But when Coral makes the choice to go after the eggs and that brings the Barracuda's attack for a Frady cat, for someone who's nervous, Marlin attacks that Barracuda. Like that is strongly. 
I actually thought that was one interesting part of the movie was uh, that just that beginning sequence where uh, she decides to go for the eggs. Like I, thinking about it and like when I w- uh, watched that scene, I was like, I wonder what actually would have happened otherwise. What do you mean? Like instead of instead of Coral swimming down towards the eggs, if she had actually just gone back into the anemone, like I know that with most movies, it's a case of whatever happens at the beginning, like if that didn't happen, the movie wouldn't happen. But just in general, from like a fish perspective, like would the Barracuda really have been so interested that it would have just gone after the eggs instead of God knows what else that's in the reef? Like. It was an interesting character choice. It, that is. And it, it, it would be an interesting, they'd, they'd have to justify it a lot more because I was reading that that's one of the scientific um, deviations from reality for the movie is that barracudas don't actually like clownfish or f- clownfish eggs. Um, so, I mean, ideally that never would have happened and therefore the story never would have happened. But I feel like you can, even if you knew that, you could justify it with when Coral goes after them, it's not that she's a clownfish, it's that there's swift movement that attracts the barracuda. That would make sense, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's how I justify it. I mean, look at it this way. It could have been the fastest movie in the world if she just swam back in the anemone. The barracuda goes into the anemone and then goes, okay, that hurts, and then leaves. Movie's done. <laughs> End scene. We're done. Everybody it go is, home. It is kind of silly to set up the anemone. Um at the beginning and you know oh we've got this house and it's safe because it's in an anemone and then within less than five minutes that's been defeated like oh we're we have this house and it's safe because it's in an anemone and oh you got eaten anyway <laughs> except for those except for those eggs right which for some reason you didn't put in the anemone <laughs> and what's worse let's put them on the edge of a cliff i i had never noticed before this watching though about the science of the anemone. The fact that the reason the clownfish do that is so that they're exposed to a little bit of the toxin and they build up a resistance. So later in the movie, when Marlin and Dory encounter the jellyfish, the little stings don't bother Marlin. And he Mm -hmm. even flat out says, it's because I live in an anemone, but for some reason my brain had never put that together before. And this time it did. (laughs) As a kid, I had no clue. As an adult now, I actually do appreciate things like that a lot more. I work at a, uh, a pet store. Not like one of the bad ones that sells like puppy mill dogs, but like one of the good ones. (laughs) Right. Uh, And like, it's very interesting learning about all these different animals, like the fish that we sell in the store. Like I'm one of the most knowledgeable ones in the store now about the fish that we sell. And like the amount of minor detail that all of these different fish species and like what goes into their care and how they live. It's very interesting. Yeah. That Now, do you think, that Finding Nemo is responsible for any of that, or is that just a separate passion and just happens to correspond correspond with this? I think some of it might have contributed. I've always been kind of an animal person. Like, I've always loved dogs especially. Um, And then Finding Nemo, I think, really gave me an appreciation for aquatic creatures, along with when I used to go fishing with my dad on occasion when I was much younger. Granted, that was a very different thing like i know how to kill and clean and gut a fish but <laughs> that's yeah that's that's not i guess relatable to this film <laughs> not quite but i do think it it kind of attributed to me wanting to learn more about fish and how they would be cared for and what their lifestyles are like and i know for the longest time as a when i was younger i really had a in fact like a fascination with sharks mm-hmm as most, I think a lot of young boys did, it was either sharks or dinosaurs, dragons, like, 
there was all that that fascination that you had as a kid and i think this kind of had some influence on that gotcha do you want to chat about sharks since you brought it up i do <laughs> we like have sharks. the we have the wonderful encounter with the uh the three sharks the and there was something in there that i had never caught before and again right there out in the open but i i, I had never really paid attention before mm-hmm. of course the sharks are uh befriending the fish because fish are friends not, not food, food. But then the first time they really say that, there's a but. It's fish are friends, not food, except for dolphins. And the (laughs) two of them start going off about how dolphins think they're better than everyone else and that kind of thing. And I was like, wait a minute, what does this movie have with dolphins? (laughs) I mean, they're they're not wrong. (laughs) <laughs> the, th- the thing is is as far as i remember dolphins actually are a foil to sharks because they will straight up like torment them oh yeah okay if i, if I remember reading right i think it's bottlenose dolphins i think they're called it's been a long time since i read stuff like this but if i remember right like they actually will taunt and like mess with sharks in the wild okay mostly because they know that they can escape from the shark without getting hurt that makes sense. From what I understand, dolphins actually are kind of assholes. <laughs> well, that's kind of the, what the movie posits posits without uh, putting it in in such terms. But yeah, um, that's and they're not fish as well. So oh. you know, <laughs> but I always I just found that really interesting. Of course, the shark, the Bruce, uh, the name of the main shark, Bruce, being a reference to Jaws, the mechanical shark that they used to make Jaws was nicknamed Bruce after Spielberg's lawyer at the time, and this movie carries that tradition on. But then the smaller sharks, the I guess they're not really smaller, but the underling sharks, I guess if you will, are voiced by Eric Bana and Bruce Spence. And if you don't know who Bruce Spence is, he appears in almost all of the Mad Max movies as the gyrocopter pilot. And he, we just did another movie that he was in um, called Hercules Returns, which was a comedy that he was in. But Eric ba- Bana playing one of the sharks is just so like everybody's gotten used to him as like the serious actor, which apparently he wasn't before he came to the States. Apparently he was a comedic actor. And it's when he came to the States that people were like, oh, you're handsome. You must be a serious actor. It's kind of a jump in logic, but okay. I'm, I I kid you not. I heard an interview with him, I want to say, on the ID10T podcast, where they talked about his background in stand-up comedy. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, the guy who was in Munich? The guy who was in that terrible Ang Lee Incredible Hulk picture? He was a stand-up comedian? But yeah, apparently that's his background. I mean, okay. <laughs> Whatever you need to do to pay the bills, I guess, right? But that, if that's where his passion is, I can I find it funny that he comes to the United States and you know breaks in here and is because he's handsome, he's considered a, a serious actor. <laughs> now I kind of want to look that up. <laughs> he's he. It really was an interesting interview with someone who I didn't expect to find such a rich backstory on. You know, I mean, it's not not that I think he's not a good person or not an interesting person. It's just he's always I, I I just didn't know much about him. And when I found that out and then, of course, as I said, you know, he's a tiny role in this movie. But that's a lot of this movie is made up of those tiny roles being voiced by really big people. You know, I mean, it's the aquarium fish. You know, you've got Brad Garrett. You've got Allison Janney. You've got Stephen Root. You know, you've got Jeffrey Rush, who has 
another one of what I think is the film's most emotional moments. He's playing a freaking pelican, but when he takes Nemo, uh, uh, Marlin and Dory after the, he's taken them to re- rescue Nemo and they think Nemo is dead and he takes them back out, he has this, he just says, I'm so sorry. Truly I am. And it's this heart wrenching delivery of the line. That's like, that's why you get an Oscar caliber actor, even for this tiny part, because my God, he breaks your heart with two sentences. Knows how to do the delivery. Yeah. And don't forget Willem Dafoe. Right. Well, and it's not a smaller (laughs) role, but yeah, Willem Dafoe. Like, I always forget he's in this movie. Like, I think of this movie and I think of Albert Brooks and Ellen DeGeneres, and I forget everybody else, which is kind of fun because then when you sit down to watch this movie, it's like, oh, right. Brad Garrett's done three Pixar movies, and this is one of them, you know? Um, but yeah, Willem Dafoe is not, again, it's not somebody you would put with doing an animated role. Like he's known for very adult type creepy villain roles. And here is a very different character for him. He's got to get that Spider-Man. He's in the ocean. <laughs> well, I was thinking more like um, Wild at Heart. Where he's talking about the 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 pea pot, the pea for your, for your head or whatever. I don't even remember the, the speech now, but it was one of the weirdest things I'd ever heard. And I was like, yes, that's Willem Dafoe. I just can't get the picture out of my head of Willem Dafoe as Green Goblin. It just like it was such a weird casting back then. But like you watch the movie and it's just like in a weird way, he really fits the role. He does. Yeah. <laughs> which is as you said it was very weird casting back then and I, I think we've all just kind of grown to accept it but it's still weird casting like he's you know david lynch type movies independent you know like the lighthouse seems like the perfect vehicle for willem dafoe not yep. finding nemo or spider-man <laughs> i mean listen movies work in mysterious ways they do yeah, I mean, it's it's such a good cast. And it again, it's a lot of it in just these tiny little parts where um, you just wouldn't expect to see some of these people. I don't know. I always get it in my head. That, like, I imagine when you're, like, directing or producing a movie like this, I can just imagine a bunch of these, like, big wigs that are sitting around a table and going, okay, we have the lines, we have the script, we need to cast these cast people for these different characters. And then they just go over the description, and it's like... Okay, we have this character named Gil. He's like super dark and edgy. He tried to escape once and got all sorts of hurt from dental tools. We need to we need to put someone in that's going to sound perfect for this character. Who are we going to cast for it? And then someone saying, well, "What about Willem Dafoe?" Like I I would be curious to know how that chain of events led to them going, "Yes, let's cast which do you think is stranger, Willem Dafoe as Gil or Samuel L. Jackson in The Incredibles? Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair. Um, Probably Samuel L. Jackson, to be honest. <laughs> or, I mean, Jeffrey Rush. Like, I hear Jeffrey Rush and I think of, like, the King's Speech where there's profanity or quills where he's playing the Marquis Lassad. You know, it's like he's, there's this whole S&M thing going on and he's in a Pixar movie here playing a pelican. You know, I mean, that's that's the joy of animation, I guess, but it's still a little weird. <laughs> Whatever works, I guess. I mean, it definitely worked considering how much of a hit the movie was. Oh, yeah. Now, I I did mention, you know, this was the first movie, Pixar movie, not uh, scored by Randy Newman Mm -hmm. uh, and doesn't include a song. It's done by Thomas Newman. 
Did you know, and if you're a fan of the movie, you probably did know, that they turned it into a musical for a 45-minute production that goes on at Disney's Animal Kingdom? I didn't, and now I want to go see it. It's... I, it, it again, been a while since I've seen this, been a while since I've been to Disney World. Uh, I do have the soundtrack to that show because that's how much I fell in love with it. Um, I did not realize how much of that show and the song's lyrics, even though they're songs, are just ripped from the movie verbatim, like line for line and then used in the the stage production and it's with puppets so you have the the fish are played by puppets with the puppeteers clearly visible but they're so good at their job your focus is on the puppet rather than the puppeteer but they stick to the movie obviously but they also use so much of this original dialogue in the play and to to do the music as well it's really well done I definitely did not just find it on YouTube, and I'm definitely not saving this for later. <laughs> you will have some of the songs stuck in your head for several days. I will warn you now. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I have I really enjoy uh, that, the, the well, musical. And I, and I was against it when they first announced it. As big a Disney fan as I was, I was like, really? You're taking the first Pixar movie that's not a musical in any way and turning it into a musical for the parks? And then I saw it and went, okay, that works. <laughs> I mean, listen, two of the comments here say, and I quote, this is bad. And then this one says, this is not cool. <laughs> well, you're going to have to get back to me after you've watched it and let me know what you think. <laughs> you're going to get a message from me like next week and I'm just going to be, God, it was so good. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I, you know, I've seen it a couple of times. Um, you know, I, I had one Disney trip with my dad and we had a blast seeing it. And then of course, as I said, I took my son when he was three and we took him to see it and he fell in love with it as well. So, uh, it's, it's, a I really like it. And I, I, I can't believe I say that, you know, knowing the history of like, why didn't they adapt one of the musicals and use that? No, they did a fantastic job adapting this one. I think. I will get back to you on that. <laughs> All right. You ready with that whale impression yet? Okay, sure. What do you want me to do? <laughs> so what have we not talked about with uh, Finding Nemo that you want to make sure we get in before we're done? I, I know it's a kind of a thing that a lot of people tend to brush over with Finding Nemo, but I do want to mention the fact that I think Finding Nemo is one of the few mo Disney movies I've seen or Disney adjacent movies where they've touched on like people with handicaps yeah, and able to actually like, I feel like they did a very good job with this movie on touching on the fact that just because somebody may have a handicap does not mean they can't do whatever it is that they want to. And I feel like this is like one of the first times Disney's really touched on that. Now, are you when you say that, are you referencing Nemo and his broken fin or are you referencing Dory and her mental condition? Honestly, both. Okay. Because I I do think that they did a really good job on touching on both. Yeah. Oh, I I agree. I, one's I, a physical uh, deformity, and or I, I don't know if deformity is the right word. Yeah. I well, I mean, technically, it is a deformed uh, fin, but yeah, you're right. It's we'll just say a, a physical setback. And then the other one being a mental. Yeah. But they were both touched on very well, honestly. Yeah. No, I, 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 one of the things I really appreciated this time watching it is when Marlon first takes Nemo 
to go off to school. And Nemo is meeting the other kids for the first time. And of course they immediately start to pick on his fin and then they, they stop. And the, like the little octopus girl is like, you know, well, this one of my tentacles is smaller than the others, but you can't tell when I do this. And, you know, nobody remembers her saying that line. They all remember the, you made me ink. Um, but mm-hmm. that's like, that's one of her lines and she's, she's connecting. She's showing empathy to Nemo in that moment even with this tiny thing saying, yes, I relate to you. And I, and I love the other kids kind of point out, you know, their own shortcomings that, you know, uh, I'm H2O intolerant. And the other one's I'm just obnoxious. like, I'm obnoxious. Exactly. I'm obnoxious. <laughs> like, like way to own that. But that's a really good point that they don't, I mean, Pixar in particular, I feel like has tried to, I, I think that's the influence that they had when Disney bought them out. Because I mean, Remember, Disney may have bought them, but like John Lasseter, who was the head of Pixar, became the executive director of animation over Disney entire. And you can't help but feel like he touched, and I hate using that word given the allegations that were put up against uh-huh. Lasseter, but uh, he, 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 his fingerprints, again, not a good way of putting it, but his <laughs> fingerprints then became part of Disney's DNA as far as they went with their stories from that point. And you start getting stories where... Uh, acceptance of homosexuality or or alter other cultures or that kind of stuff has become part of the Disney blueprint. They've gone from this very white girl princess, almost Aryan at times princess image to something a lot more diverse and a lot more accepting and understanding. And I, I think you're right. I think that's that's definitely here more prevalent than anywhere else. But I think it's a direction that Disney has gone as a whole over time. And, and that's not a bad thing. No, it's wonderful. I mean, even uh, touching on more recent films like Frozen and Moana, both of them touch on some very specific subjects. Like, there does not need to be a big man hero that comes in and it bees a Chad that saves the day, or there does not need to be a romantic love interest in every goddamn movie. Yes. Yeah, and Frozen kind of undercuts that eventually on their own. I mean, it is more about sisterly love. It does get that romantic angle in there eventually. But you're right, Moana doesn't have that at all, and it does not suffer a bit for not having it. I I appreciate movies that kind of go outside of the norm and really do show that just because something is different or something is not according to the formula that most people follow for things like this does not mean that it's going to fail. Yeah. But it's a rarity enough that I tend to point it out when it is a movie that comes on the show that doesn't have a romantic angle. Like that's it's so ingrained in the Hollywood storytelling that like the week that we're recording this, it'll be a while before this episode airs. But the week that we're recording this hot fuzz was the episode that came out. And I specifically in that conversation pointed out there's no romance. It was there was there wasn't an original draft and they pulled it out because it wasn't needed for the story. Yeah, sometimes they just tend to throw it in there and just be like, yeah, just have it in there as part of the story. And it's like, no, don't. Yeah. And we don't get a romantic relationship between Marlon and Dory. In fact, I I think it, it practically becomes another father, in this case, daughter relationship to some degree. Because when they're in that whale and Marlon is having his breakdown, he says that to Dory about, you think you can do these things, but you can't, Nemo. And it's like, oh, that's how you're perceiving Dory. Mm-hmm. You're treating her the same way as you treat your child. That part really does hit home, too. It's like, oh, yeah, he's learning. I told you, that's that's the scene that tears me up now. 
I mean, obviously when he thinks Nemo's dead and like Dory's speech about, you know, when I'm with you, I don't forget things. When I'm with you, it feels like home. I don't want to forget that. And Marlin's response is, I'm sorry, but I do. That's heartbreaking. But to mm-hmm. me, even more are those moments where Marlin is realizing his own shortcomings and realizing what he's doing as far as how he perceives his son. To me, that's the strength of the movie. It shows good character progression, too. As somebody that likes... The best way I can explain it is, so like with TLD, uh, with character progression, it's a big thing for us. Right. And I, I appreciate when there is that kind of non-forced, like genuine character growth where you see this figure go from something very different from how they are at the end of the movie and it didn't feel forced. Like it was a genuine, the character learned over time and it, it feels it feels good when that happens. I forgot to put this in my notes, but one thing I did want to mention, I'm glad I remembered this because I was just about to move us into the end credits here. Um, uh, one of the podcasts I listened to on writing on mm-hmm. on storytelling um, is hosted by Craig Mazin, who won a Emmy last year for Chernobyl on HBO. Oh. And he does this podcast with John August. They do this this uh, podcast. And there was an episode about a year, year and a half ago where John was out of the picture. So Craig did a solo episode and he said, let's talk about the foundations of storytelling. And this was the movie he used as an example of the perfect formula for story about what drives a story, what changes the character, what motivates the character, and therefore drives the story forward. I forgot. He used Finding Nemo as his example of like the formula to follow, not saying it's formulaic, but saying if you want to use an an example that isn't romance, that isn't that kind of stuff, this is really good for character motivation. I'm glad to hear that somebody more professional than I have said so. <laughs> My character progression ex- expertise extends no further than me playing a D&D character for over three years. <laughs> Which, to my credit, I've had a lot of people telling me has gone very well, but... Hey, I'm a fan. That's all, all I'll say. All right, let's move to the end credits here. First up, we have the algorithm says, this is a list of movies that various algorithms say you will like because you liked Finding Nemo. So this is like a lightning round of your responses to these movies. Do you okay. like them? Do you not like them? Do you not see the connection? That kind of thing. Now, typically when we have a movie like this, I try to pull out the ones that are very clearly associated with it, like Pixar movies. But if I pulled all the Pixar movies out of this list, I only got four movies from all the algorithms I reference to use. So there are the first half is going to be Pixar movies and then we'll get into some non-Pixar films. Okay. But I tried to go with some of the the lesser iconic Pixar movies, if you will. All right. So first up, we have A Bug's Life. Yeah, I yeah. I liked that one actually as a kid. I think as an adult I don't care for it as much, but yeah. How come? I don't know. Just something about the movie just doesn't ensnare me as an adult as it did when I was a kid. Like, I thought it was very cutesy and fun when I was a kid. Right. But just as an adult, like, I think I watched it, I want to say, like, three, four years ago again just to revisit. And I was like, all right. I mean, it's still cutesy and fun, but it doesn't quite touch the same way. Okay. All right. Monsters, Inc. Yeah. Monsters, Inc. one of those. Oh, no, really? No, no, not in the bad way. Just like in the, like, if you have not seen Monsters, Inc., like, I pity you. 
<laughs> so so many jokes that have been made this year with COVID and everything going on that relate to Monsters Inc. You kind of have to have seen it by now. <laughs> I <laughs> oh, it took me a second. I was like, wait, jo- okay, never mind. I put two and two together. <laughs> the contamination and the the whatever the the squad is that comes in whenever there's a, a... we have a twenty three nineteen. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> all right uh ratatouille i'm gonna be honest i hated ratatouille really hated it i can't say hated about any pixar film i could say one that i distinctly dislike but i can't even say i hate that one interesting what what about it did you hate i'm undermining i'm undermining my whole lightning round principle by asking you these questions but no no that's quite all right it, I don't just something about the movie didn't quite capture me the same way. I think it might just be because of the fact that it came out so much later in my life. Gotcha. That when I watched it for the first time, it just didn't connect with me on the same way that some of these other movies did. Okay. Fair like, enough. As an example, Moana again referring back to it, like that is in my top five movies of all time because of the fact that it's such a new movie, but god damn did I love the movie. Yeah. No, I can get that. Okay. That makes sense. Um, okay, Cars. Yeah, Cars has that same kind of... <laughs> you can enjoy it as a kid or an adult. I just can't enjoy it as much as an adult because of me working at GameStop and having to deal with kids wanting that goddamn game and then just... Uh... <laughs> Cars 2 is the one Pixar film that I think is just an absolute bad movie. So I can I can understand. I'm not a huge Cars fan. Uh, I I think it's too much, you know, Doc Hollywood or other films along that line. But I enjoy it. But you get into Cars two and it's like, bleh. Cars three is the one that really hits hard, if I remember correctly. And that's the only Pixar movie I have not seen. Uh, I hadn't seen it when I appeared on the other podcast and did my Pixar top five, and I still haven't remedied that. So I need to fix that. <laughs> Genuinely, uh, you should. It like, it's. It, it touches on the um, move along prior generation thing. Mm. It it hits on that in a way where you're like, am I old? <laughs> am, am I relating to the prior? Am, am I a boomer? <laughs> Which, uh, okay. for clarification, I'm not. I'm a millennial. Speaking of previous generations, up. Yeah. Yeah. If oh, you've man. seen Finding Nemo, you really should watch up. Yeah. Okay. I was like, really? Okay. No. Okay. No. You're no. Just, I li- I did like up. You're just a quiet, contemplative folk there because you're not like going gaga over the way at least the way I do. But yeah. Okay. Good. You like up. Okay. I'm waiting to see if you touch on the one movie that I will go gaga over. The last Pixar one that I have is Wally. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> God. Yes. Wally was so good. Right. <laughs> you. It just goes to show you do not need a movie that has like. So much dialogue to set up such a good story. Right. No, that's that's its brilliance is it does so much with so uh, so little in, in dialogue. It made it into my top five uh, Pixar films as well for that. And the other two people who I was doing the podcast with had never seen it. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know there were there was some hate against Wally because of the oh, it's one of those protect the environment movies. It's like, OK, first off. Yes, protect the goddamn environment because we live here. Uh, but two, listen, it's still a good movie. Enjoy it. Yeah. Okay, let's move into non-Pixar films for the last four here. Uh, first up, Shrek. 
<laughs> oh no. I can't I'm sorry, I can't take Shrek seriously anymore because it's a goddamn meme. Yeah. It's just such a meme movie now that like I, I watched it when it came out in theaters and I was like, wow, this is such a good movie. And then now fast forward, God knows how many years later. And it's like, oh, the Shrek's a meme. And it's like, all right. I couldn't take it seriously in the first place anyway, because it was so blatantly an attack by Jeffrey Katzenberg on Michael Eisner and Disney. It really is. Yeah. It, and I was like, I couldn't take it seriously the first time I saw it because of that. <laughs> I think the point that really stabbed, like drives it home that this is supposed to be a stab at Disney is the the music box when they yes. first go into city and it starts singing and it's like, oh, I see what you're doing here. Okay. All right. How to train your dragon. Oh, yes, please. See, there's that father-son dynamic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Rio. I actually haven't seen it. I haven't either. It's the only one on this list I haven't seen, and I don't feel like I'm missing anything, so I'm not going. I was like, maybe he'll say something that'll make me want to see it. No, nope, apparently not. It was one of those newer age movies where it came out, and I was like, I could do without it. All right, last one. Dr. Seuss's Horton Hears a Who. Also haven't seen it. It's not bad. It's it's Jim Carrey being a, an elephant, but it's Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey. So, okay, I mean Jim Carrey sells things pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's not bad. It's As it, someone that loved Ace Ventura. You know, it's <laughs> then you'll probably enjoy it. That should have been on the list. If you've watched Finding Nemo and enjoy it, go watch Ace Ventura. That's you're not wrong. <laughs> All right, we always end with a pop quiz. Four multiple choice questions based on the movie. Are you ready? Oh no. Yeah, yeah. You didn't. They didn't tell you this was coming. <laughs> no, no. I saw that in the email. I just. I, I'm going. Oh no, because I guarantee you, I'm probably going to fail. Uh, I doubt it. I doubt it. Uh, all right. Number one. Upon release, Finding Nemo became the highest-grossing animated film at that time, beating the record set by what previous record holder? A. Aladdin. B. The Lion King. C. Cinderella. Or D. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I think Lion King, right? It absolutely is Lion King. Yes. Now, if you adjust for inflation, it's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, but the Lion King held the record up until Finding Nemo came out. When it broke the record, uh, the uh, Andrew Stanton got a telephone call from the producer of Lion King, whose message was, instead of congratulations, it was, it's about damn time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this goes to something we talked about in, in the episode. Number two, Albert Brooks was not the original voice for Marlin. An early cut of the film with the original voice led then-CEO Michael Eisner to state the film would be a reality check for Pixar because it didn't live up to the quality of their previous films, leading director Andrew Stanton to replace what actor with Brooks? A. Woody Allen, B. Steve Buscemi, C. William H. Macy, or D. Christopher Walken? I don't know. All four of those answers terrify me. <laughs> I think especially Buscemi and uh, Walken. <laughs> All right, what's your guess? Um, I'm going to guess Walken, because that to me, that's amusing as hell. No, it's William H. Macy. He recorded oh. all of the dialogue, and they had animated it to his uh, to his um, um, vocals, and it didn't go over well, so they recast it. I'm glad that they did. I did not know that until today. That fascinated me. Uh, all right, number three. According to the DVD extras, Albert Brooks spent an entire day in the recording studio working on one piece of dialogue in an effort to get it right. What piece was it? A, the anemone joke. B, the interaction with the fish school. C, the emotional breakthrough in the whale. Or D, the line, I know you can when Nemo is trying to save Dory. Hmm. 
I'm going to go with C. Uh, no, it's the anemone joke. He spent an entire day in the recording studio doing different takes and different fumbles of the anemone joke. Apparently, he had the recording studio in stitches while he was messing up a joke, <laughs> which is just a testament to how good Albert Brooks is. Oh, my. Is there? I need to go on YouTube and see if there's like an outtake video of that. I haven't looked yet. I'll have to, yeah, I'll have to look for that. All right, last one. Andrew Stanton had an hour-long pitch session when he proposed the movie to Pixar head John Lasseter. According to Stanton, what part of the pitch won him the job? A, Marlin's overprotective nature towards Nemo. B, the challenge of animating an aquatic environment. C, the idea of the aquarium in the dentist's office. Or D, the word fish. My brain's telling me B. My heart is telling me D. (laughs) (laughs) What you gonna go with? I'm going to go with B and pray that it's not D. It actually is D. He did an hour-long pitch pitch uh, meeting, and Lasseter, he asked Lasseter at the end, what did you think? And Lasseter said, you had me at the word fish. Oh. <laughs> All right, man, time to talk about the lucky die or whatever else it is you want to uh, promote. Where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Sure. Uh, so... Hi, I've been Arch. You can find me on uh, Twitter at Arch underscore DND. Um, the big things that you can find me on is I play Balance slash Laffy and Dathrodeer on the Lucky Die podcast. Uh, you can also find me on Twitch where I live stream uh, weekly, usually about two to three times a week. And that is twitch.tv forward slash Arch What are you twi- What are you streaming? It depends on the day. Uh, Mondays are VR Monday, where I'll usually play VR chat. Uh, Wednesdays used to be Seven Days to Die. I'm trying to figure out where to fill that in now because it had to uh, be canceled. Um, Thursdays, we're trying to have D&D. We had it for a few days. And unfortunately, our Dungeon Master had to drop out due to life issues. Mm -hmm. And Friday, I get to be a wonderful sea sailing pirate on Sea of Thieves with my girlfriend as well as two of our friends. And I think that's probably the most entertainment is uh, Friday nights because it's pirates. You can get drunk in the game (laughs) (laughs) while sailing a boat. (laughs) Sounds like sounds like that's up my alley. (laughs) Genuinely, if you've not played Sea of Thieves, it's on sale on Steam right now. It is so much fun. I'm writing it down right now because I've not played it and uh, I still have a a couple weeks well at the time we're recording this it'll be long out by the time this airs but i still have a couple weeks till shadowlands comes out for world of warcraft so (laughs) yes i'm so excited which i forgot to ask you earlier and there are are wow players who listen to this who are going to crucify me if i don't ask alliance or horde for the horde oh get out of here get out of here been a pleasure having you on the show but i can't wow okay all right All right, thank you for a great conversation uh, about Finding Nemo. This has been fantastic, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. I had a lot of fun talking about my childhood. (laughs) So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about Finding Nemo, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter and Letterboxd, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook where I Have Not Seen This podcast, or you can email me at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode. Lo que te estoy proponiendo me avergüenza, y mucho. Pero nos conocemos desde hace años, 
y siento que tenemos esta confianza. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard Entertainment games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Arch for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsh, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other. Thank you.